The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Lizzie Burden's with us as well. Full house today in the family. I wonder, you political experts, uh, what's our collective noun for prime ministers? <laughs> um, well, there are a lot of them around these days. Indeed. Yeah, well, that's what we think is, yeah, well, if you include the X's, yeah. I've just, swarm, uh, yeah, I've just had a cacophony. A cacophony of a prime cacophony ministers of PMs. Uh, is what we had yesterday when we saw, of course, that Brexit vote. Uh, being passed through Parliament, 515 votes to 22. Hmm. I mean, it made, to be honest, I know that we're talking a lot about the other Prime Ministers involved. Boris Johnson and Liz Truss obviously voted against, win for Rishi Sunak. I felt a bit sorry for Theresa May, to be honest. Remember the times that we'd be sitting there counting whether or not there'd be five votes in it, ten votes in it, (laughs) and oof, it was 90, and you think, well, this just feels like a lifetime ago now that something on Brexit can pass so easily through Parliament. Yes, but hang on a second. I thought that we were going to get a great bit of difficulty in actually getting this Northern Ireland issue through Parliament. So I think it's quite a shock that it went through so quickly with such a large vote. Yeah, just 22 votes. And in fact, 10% of those were disgruntled former prime ministers. <laughs> <laughs> Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, almost 10%. But I yeah. love that maths calculation. <laughs> I like to crunch the numbers. But what I mean, what incredible uh, symbolism yesterday. I thought it was so you powerful. Absolute scenes. Was that was there about to happen? Absolute scenes. Boris Johnson in a, in a stuffy little committee room being grilled by complete... Can I say non-entity? Backbench MPs he'd never Ooh, heard of. That's a bit be, harsh. Let's be a little bit more polite. Being grilled by uh, random backbench MPs who, who I bet he didn't know the names of before he walked in that room. Well, the mother of the house as well. Oh, yes. Harriet, Harriet Harman, Harriet Harman is, is, is a name. But many of the other ones are pretty, pretty random. It was their, their moment to shine. He was there for half an afternoon uh, being interrogated, whilst at the very same time, Rishi Sunak was triumphant in Parliament, winning, as you say, 515 votes to 22, getting his Brexit deal through uh, against uh, all the odds. Mm. I just thought it was such a powerful kind of changing of the guard. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And also, I think um, the other major surprise, I think, politically yesterday was that Rishi Sunak actually revealed um, the tax the tax returns mm. that he has promised to deliver within a year. He did that. And so there were two ways of looking at this. I think a lot of people thought that it kind of passed without issue. I think the numbers are pretty flabbergasting and that they will end up getting more attention. But on the other hand, there wasn't that much detail to it in, in the sense that, yes, he um, received, what, 600000 in investment income, £3.8 million in capital uh, gains income between 2019 and 2022. But we don't know much more than that. Mm. He paid half a million quid in taxes in one year alone. So 
I, I think if you know if voters might sort of think about that. But on the other hand, we all knew that the prime minister was very wealthy, married to somebody who's very, very, very wealthy, and so actually, even getting the tax returns out there doesn't seem to have uh, dented him. I mean, I think it's interesting that we know now that he is a millionaire. We certainly yes. knew that his wife was worth what, 800 million or some uh, a, enormous sum. But we also know that he is wealthy in his own right, which is interesting. So I wonder if Labour campaign literature is going to say millionaire Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, because well, now we can say that for certain. Yes. The other thing interesting, or maybe it's not surprising, is it's the oldest, it's the oldest uh, PR trick, isn't it, in yes. the book? <laughs> pick a pick a day to put out some bad news, and they picked a very good day to put out bad news today. Yeah, I mean, um, our intrepid producer uh, James got in touch with John Stepek, who of course writes the Money Distilled column for Bloomberg, and his take is that essentially these were very boring tax returns. <laughs> yeah, and and that's why I sort of counter that part. I don't think they were as boring as they look. I think they, you know, I think perhaps they have cut through. Anyway. Um, we also, though, um, have got Lizzie Burden um, with us this morning, who was watching in full Boris Johnson's evidence. We always do like to have a little rant, don't we, on we the programme. Lizzie Burden, <laughs> I think that Boris Johnson looked cornered. I think he looked defensive yesterday. Martin Ivans writes for Bloomberg today that this really is the kind of end of the road uh, for Johnson. He says that the smart money is on Johnson getting off with a grovelling apology and a penalty of less than 10 days. Are you not putting in jeopardy his seat as an MP? But basically, Martin Ivans saying that Johnson has finally lost his political touch. I think I might agree with that. Yeah, look, who am I to disagree with the great Martin Ivans? I've just parachuted in for one of you in small rants before I glue myself to the BOE decision. <laughs> but I agree yesterday was a great day for Rishi Sunak, even if it started with that upside inflation surprise. Economists still reckon that inflation's going to fall later this year. He won that vote, as you say, on the Windsor framework convincingly, despite Liz Truss and Boris Johnson joining the rebels. And he could sip his Coke smugly with the Partygate <laughs> testimony dominating the airways. But... Right. I've come in here to confess. I could not switch it off yesterday. I know none of you agree with me, but I don't think that the population at large is as bothered as the media make out about Partygate. I think like Brexit, the Westminster bubble just isn't reading the room here. I agree with Johnson's narrative that he was forced out because of fury whipped up by the media and thrusty MPs. But what the country could have done with was for Johnson to be as serious as he was yesterday when he was in office. He'd had a haircut, he'd got his suit on. On. His pages were clearly carefully but numbered. All, this was a man who meant business. Where was that when he was on the world stage? Yeah, but all well and good when when the action is passed. You know, that's. I actually I disagree. I think the party gate does cut through to the British public. I think there was a very very hard time during the pandemic, and I think that that idea of parting in ten Downing Street, you know, did read across to voters but hey that's just my view yeah i think i'd probably take a, a, a view sort of somewhere between the two of you but th there is no doubt that what you said earlier caroline is true is that is that his star is what's the phrase his star is waning fading his star uh, is his star is fading there's no doubt about the parliamentary arithmetic nobody was prepared to to back him he marched into the division lobbies to say no i'm not backing this deal all the erg or a lot of the erg said we'll take it and boris johnson was just left looking sort of friendless do you think we'll pay as much attention to the rest of this, Lizzie? I will. <laughs> Be glued to every word. Well, he's just so charismatic. And ultimately, isn't that what matters with the voters? It's always been priced in that Boris Johnson is like this. We've always known this. Mm. He's great telly. He yes, but then perhaps there is a moment. I mean, 
again, it's not a not an exact comparison, but with Donald Trump, you know, that, that charisma, sometimes there's a moment when it when it passes. Yeah, I mean, he is great, Tammy. There's no doubting that. But I, there's, I think there's, there's a feeling, certainly in the Conservative Party, that they want somebody who can run things competently. And, you know, charm and charisma and great telly is fine, but we've had all that for quite a few years. Yeah. And I think certain elements of the Conservative Party would like to, to move on from that. And Sunak, isn't he running things well? You have to take your hat off to him. He's having victory after victory, ticking off his checklist. Yes, that inflation print didn't look nice, but economists still say it's coming down. Okay, Lizzie Burden, thank you so much uh, for spending a bit of time with us in the studio, our UK correspondent. And we will, of course, um, have you back hopefully tomorrow to digest the Bank of England amidst the cost of living crisis. Uh, Do they raise interest rates in the UK or not? That'll be quite important politically too. Well, let's switch gears now and dig into a fascinating piece of Bloomberg research around the UK's power market. Now, our reporters have found that some of the UK's biggest energy companies have been switching on and switching off power plants at peak times in order to secure higher prices. Now, it's a practice that's earned them some £525 million over a four-year period, a cost ultimately paid by households and businesses. Our power, gas and renewables reporter Todd Gillespie joins us now in studio for more. Todd, great to have you with us. Can you explain exactly how this works? What is the practice that we're talking about? Yeah, it's a complicated one, but basically it revolves around the way that people can operate a power station. So, you know, it's not as simple for the grid operator and for suppliers and generators to just switch stuff on and off um, at any time they want to. Um, And basically it takes about six hours for a gas-fired power plant to cool down once it's run, which means that if it turns off in an afternoon, it normally won't be available during the peak demand period, which is in the early evening, normally around 5 or 6 p.m. And Traders can kind of take advantage of that on high demand days when like wind is low, when a lot of uh, there's not much renewable generation in the system and the grid needs to pay these plants to stay on using our money, um, usually with a premium to fill this uh, shortfall. And when the grid is strained and it has few other choices of plants to call on, traders can essentially end up naming their price uh, for, to be kept on. Otherwise, they'll switch off. OK, so... This sounds a bit like gaming the system somehow. Why are they allowed to do this to decide when they switch on the power and off the power? Yeah, so it's, I mean, you can basically say that, you know, plants are able to be run according to the commercial interests of people who who run them, right? There should be a profit incentive uh, in the market. Uh, There should be competition among different providers, um, which helps drive the cost down. The issue is on tight days, there isn't much competition at all. There's a there's a supply shortage. There's a, there are uh, only a limited number of people who can provide the power that the grid really needs. For instance, when wind is really low, there aren't turbines spinning. There are only a few plants that can just turn up their energy at will. Um, so on days like that, um, you have outsized market power when you're a trader that runs these kinds of plants. Talk to us about the about the money involved with this. I, I see in your piece you said that they they could charge as much as six thousand pounds. Uh, a megawatt hour that's that's is that 60p a kilowatt that's i mean that's quite a lot isn't it that's expensive just talk us through how much money they'd be making potentially from all of this yeah so i mean just for context like a normal uh megawatt hour um before the energy crisis you're normally talking about 60 pounds per megawatt hour so this is about a thousand times um about a thousand times higher uh sorry about a hundred times higher apologies (laughs) about a hundred times higher um and um but that is that's for like a normal day, you know, like an, an, an average sort of hedged price when when people will sell their generation in advance. 
Obviously, during the day, when people can trade at different times, you can trade a year in advance, you can sell out months in advance, you can sell out even as close as half an hour in advance. So there are lots of different ways that traders can basically sell out the generation or pledge their generation um, to the system. Mm. And that means that when stuff gets super tight, um, you can end up with a, with a system where the wholesale price during the day is, is pretty high already. I mean, you could be talking on days, you know, hitting a thousand um, maybe fifteen hundred pounds uh, per mega or hour, um, and that for some traders, they argue, uh, it justifies them hiking it even more uh, when this balancing system—it's called when the grid needs to top up uh, the supply that it needs. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of justifies them charging an even higher price because of a scarcity argument. Ultimately, who pays for all this? All of us pay for it. So the the way that the grid balances the system is they they basically have a, a pot of cash that. Um, it's essentially bottomless and they claim it back through charges that are spread across everybody's bills. Um, so if you Ouch. use the energy system in this country uh, and you pay a bill, this kind of stuff is is feeding through to your bills. Yeah, and, and I love the fact that Bloomberg actually gets into the weeds of this and, and um, it's a really difficult thing to investigate, but it involves some of the names that householders will know. I mean, uh, SSE, for example, Uniper, Vitol, so you must have put all of this to them. What was their response? Yeah, I mean, the simple, the simple answer that we got from all of these companies is that they aren't breaking the rules. And it's true. The regulator hasn't found any conclusive evidence of rule breaking. Um, but what you will find now is that the regulator, which is for the first time in our story, called this practice manipulation. Um, they are coming out now and trying to change the rules to make it explicitly not allowed. And is this something that, only goes on in the UK. Presumably, uh, the energy market is right across the continent, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's symptomatic of of a market where there is uh, tight supply. So, um, in the UK, in particular, in the past few years, there have been a couple of gas plants which have shut off, uh, which have haven't been profitable, and therefore the supply is constrained. Electrification at the same time has increased demand. So, we're seeing a lower lower supply and higher demand in terms of. Uh, when we're talking about supply, particularly flexible, dispatchable supply, i.e. supply that can come on at will, we're not talking about renewables, um, which means that when renewables off the system, there's an even smaller proportion uh, of stable generation that can just hop in and fill that gap. So other markets that are experiencing this um, uh, can can sort of see these, these kind of tight spots as well. Um, we haven't managed yet to delve into to the you know a lot of other markets yeah different i mean the thing about power markets is they're super specific depending on different countries they're run really differently um it's not like a power trader can just hop from one country to another really easily there are a whole new set of rules whole new set of um you know regulations and mm -hmm. and context for that um but we are definitely keen to to look into more countries so if any listeners have any suggestions um please feel free to email us <laughs> on the link in our story <laughs> online yeah you can see uh todd's um big take story on the terminal or on the Bloomberg uh, UK website. I wonder if I could just inject a note of positivity here. These figures are really quite stark, but we had lots of warnings, didn't we, before the winter started that, that the lights were going to go off, it was going to be a disaster, there'd be blackouts everywhere. And actually the system has worked, hasn't it? We've we've pretty much had winter and the lights stayed on. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 you know the traders who generate the who use these plants, who run these plants will say that it, it you know it's thanks to them that the lights have stayed on. And indeed they have stayed on, but the question is really whether the lights should have stayed on at this cost and in this way um, and down to a market where just a few people have an outsized level of power to control it. 
So interesting. Thank you so much for being with us, Todd, um, and for explaining this story. That is our Power, Gas and Renewables reporter, Todd Gillespie. He's written this story along with Gavin Finch and Jason Grotto. So, yes, it's on the Bloomberg UK website if you want to read about it. Well, from power plants then to the high street. And now polling has consistently shown the cost of living crisis among the biggest concern for voters. Rising prices and costs, of course, part of that picture as well. So an interesting time to think about the state of the UK high street. Well, Fraser's, which owns the UK's biggest sportswear retailer, Sports Direct, is betting on physical stores. It's just opened a third flagship store in Manchester. Well, we've been speaking to CEO Michael Murray about their strategy for the future. I think that's purely down to our strategy and the execution and the conviction behind the strategy. I think we've got a very proven track record now over the last two to three years coming out of the pandemic. And we're just staying very laser focused on on delivering uh, our strategy. I mean, you, you've seen that obviously the trend over the last five years was digital, digital, digital. And we believe it's digital and uh, high street and uh, and retail, which is the perfect combination for the future. The cost of acquisition online now is so expensive to acquire new customers. We'd rather invest in the high street and let people's our consumers come and touch our, our store environment, see our product, and it also drives online sales together. So we we really believe in this omni-channel mix is the future of uh, of retail. What kind of behaviour are you seeing right now from shoppers, given that inflation is weighing on consumers in the UK and that inflation hasn't peaked in Britain? Yeah, well, it's um, inflation is is obviously dictated by our, our brand partners. When as and when the prices increase, we follow suit. And uh, obviously, there's been the the the, the freight increases, there's the currency headwinds, uh, and unfortunately, there has been inflation, and there will continue to be inflation across all of our. Uh, price increases across all of our businesses um but what we do offer is choice for our consumers we don't just sell the highest price point product people can trade up or down depending on their financial circumstances and that's we are very very conscious of that making sure we offer choice for for each individual consumer who we we're, we're targeting how much more do you have to expect to raise prices this year um it's a very, very difficult question. And as I said, we're, we're led by the third party brands. They they set the price, recommended prices, and we have to follow. We hope not much, but um, we, we will wait and see. Do you feel you have pricing power left with your customers, though? Are you worried about losing people if, if the prices continue to go up? Well, we do have our own brand proposition as well, especially in the sports segment, which we've got a bit uh, uh, more control over. Uh, so we will keep an eye on that as well to make sure we can still offer that. Uh, value to that uh, that customer who requires it. So that was Michael Murray, the CEO of Fraser's, who was speaking to Stephen and I about uh, their Sports Direct store in Manchester. I mean, I think he's, it's a really fascinating business in the UK. It's one that surely is poised to pick up any further distressed businesses from the UK high street. Mm, and he, he he said in that entry that, you know, they would be looking to see what yeah. options are available. No names in mind, though, um, when we talk to him about it. Well, let's let's bring in our own queen of the high street, uh, as I've just dubbed her. Andrea Felstead, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, is with us in studio. Sorry, Andrea, I could have sprung that one on you. Um, very nice to have you with us. So we, that was uh, the Fraser CEO we were just hearing from there, talking about wanting to get people into their stores. They're expanding their footprint to do so. Are they alone in wanting to do that in the UK retail space? No. We're seeing lots of retailers um, go back to the high street. Um, 
we we saw during the pandemic that everybody shopped online since things have reopened and consumers feel more comfortable about getting out and about into brick and mortar stores they really have they want to feel the fabric they want to try on the lipstick they're really enjoying going back to physical stores again now the big question is is that going to last because just as online over indexed in the pandemic probably right now physical stores are over indexing in in everyday shopping the question is is that going to come back to more of an equilibrium and so the stores that retailers are opening are they going to find that they're perhaps not as busy not as productive as they imagined and also Fraser's were talking yes about expanding physical shops but it was very much about omni channels go and have a look at the fabric have the experience but then you shop and have it delivered to your home and also i thought john lewis was turning all of their shops into flats <laughs> well exactly you really need both um the, that is the message that's coming over because we don't know where this is going to settle down so you know if you were completely bricks and mortar like primark you struggled when we locked down if you're completely online asos boohoo they have struggled since everybody's going back to stores so the ideal mix is stores and online and next probably britain's most successful retailer has all has always had a very good mix marks and spencer's have had a good mix and and even john lewis has had a good mix of stores and online the the trouble is john lewis is is struggling on on many fronts so uh, that's probably not living up to its full potential right now i do want to dig into that a little bit because you wrote a great piece about john lewis recently and the challenges they're facing what is going wrong at john lewis well they did close many stores so i think that was very short-sighted that there's lots of competition not just online you've got dunelm which is a value home retailer at waitrose you know marks and spencers has got its act together in food and actually marks and spencers is turning around a bit on non-food as well but it's really got its act together on food there is a lot of competition and john lewis it, it has cut stores it has cut uh costs in in terms of staff and so you know customers were happy to go there when you sort of really felt you were getting good value for money that doesn't always equal the lowest price and good service and and amid you know everything that's happened that they're not quite feeling like that now they also had this pledge never to be beaten on price they got rid of that and they haven't really replaced it with anything very compelling so they are they are struggling on on many fronts and they really need to get they need to ditch this flats idea they need to ditch expansion in financial services and they really need to get you know stick to their knitting and get back to being good retailers <laughs> we're not talking about the haberdashery <laughs> yeah. department although it is my favorite Mine um, too. <laughs> they really need to get back to basics be a better retailer that that and that will you know hopefully bring about the, a change in their fortunes. Andrew, you, you you paint a rosy picture of the high street, everybody rushing back after the pandemic, desperate to get into the shops. But if you go to a lot of smaller towns, and I think this is less the case in London, but you go to a lot of smaller towns and they feel pretty run down, don't they? There are lots of vacant shops, so retailers expanding is that is that's not the norm, is it? There is there is still trouble out there. Broadly. There are trouble out there, but actually the vacancies have gone down, the empty shops have gone down, mm-hmm. um, and and you know. We, 
we often sort of look at high streets, but the the out of town retail parks are very vibrant at the moment. Okay, uh, which is a problem. How do you regenerate these these older high streets? But when you go to you know malls and to out of town shopping centres, they they are very busy. Does is this still as politically potent as it was when I think back to 2011 and Mary Portas? Do you remember that brought uh, in to advise the government then on the future of the British High Street and it was about jobs and economic growth? Is it still a potent issue in that way, retail? I think it is. I I think it is because you know you can see it. You've only got to sort of walk down the high street and you can see the you know the boarded up shops mm. and it does feel in some places not all it does feel a bit desolate um so so yes i think it is but it's it's important to realize how things have shifted and that you know perhaps the high street isn't what we see on the high street isn't perhaps the full picture of retail fascinating stuff Bloomberg opinion columnist andrea felter thanks so much for joining us on the show today I think it's fascinating to read what this means for politics, though, isn't it? Because people uh, see the high street as representative of their community. So they go into town and it looks bombed out. And so then it feels to them like the economy is struggling, whereas isn't it may just be retail that's struggling. Is this, to quote one of Andrea's colleagues, Tres Raphael, a vibe session? Is it that things uh, actually are OK, but they feel worse? Well, yeah. but hang on. I mean, I'm in London, OK? And London is basically a collection of villages. And the little village around me or the little high streets all dotted around me, they actually are really vibrant. Yes, Oxford Street may be boarded up, but the little high streets around me have got new shops, they've got new restaurants, and, you know, they actually sprung to life after the pandemic. And will they... Uh, to the bigger growth picture that mm. the Prime Minister is trying to achieve with the economy? Will they create as many jobs? Will they pay people as well? You know, there, there's a kind of a, a bigger macro question around that shift as well if people are moving to smaller shops. Yeah, and there's an interesting pandemic story, isn't it? Is that shifting to neighbourhoods from the, the big high street? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Fascinating. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock. Our audio engineer was Marie Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.